Hey everyone, and welcome to the Kodakery. I'm Megan. And I'm Josh. For this episode, Josh and I took a quick trip down the road to sit down with the world-renowned senior curator at the George Eastman Museum. Paolo took some time to discuss what a curator does and talk to us about the importance of film not only as an art, but as a form of preservation for generations to come, and why that's so significant. While his wisdom on the subject of cinema is impressive, the care he takes with the perspective he has is even more extraordinary. Listen in to hear what Paolo has to say about his life, his relationship with film, and what he believes to be the significance of cinema on civilization. Let's jump into the Kodakery and talk with him. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Kodakery. We are on the road today. We've taken the show to the George Eastman Museum, where we're going to talk with Paolo Kerki Uzai. Thank you for joining us today, Paolo. Thank you. Um, Paolo, could you tell the folks uh, kind of your title and, and a little bit about what you do here at the museum? I am the senior curator of the Moving Image Department at the George Eastman Museum, and my goal is to acquire, preserve, and make accessible the cinematic heritage of the world. We have a collection of over 20,000 films, 28,000 films actually, uh, representing the entire history of cinema from the Lumiere brothers to the digital era. Excellent. So, so we kind of want to talk with you both about a little bit about your, yourself, your career, the museum, um, everything that's kind of led you to the, the point that you're at today. So let's go back a little bit to the beginning. Um, where were you born? I was born in Italy. Uh, where I worked as a journalist and then as the organizer of the Pordenone Silent Film Festival, which is the major international venue for the rediscovery of the silent cinematic heritage. I came to the Eastman Museum, which was then called the George Eastman House, for the first time in 1986 as a researcher, and I was immediately struck by the importance, the beauty of the collection, by the expertise of the staff, and by the research resources available in this institution. So falling in love with the George Eastman Museum uh, didn't take much. <laughs> uh, so as soon as an opportunity uh, came up, uh, I applied, and I'm very proud to be part of the George Eastman Museum team. So. When did you fall in love with film? Oh, that's a very long story. I was not born as a cinephile. Uh, my love for cinema came through a rather convoluted route uh, involving my studies in political science. So from political science to cinema, it, uh, there is a bit of a, of a gap. But long story short, I discovered uh, way back uh, that so much needed to be done in order to preserve the history of cinema and to make it more available to a wider audience. Uh, at the time when I started, uh, film preservation was a discipline still um, in formation, and uh, I thought I could do something in order to foster a greater awareness of the importance of the history of cinema. The museum is an international museum 
um, by its statutory mission, and the international scope of this collection uh, is something that makes the study of the history of cinema particularly exciting and compelling. Here you can really find a representative samples of films made all over the world, and cinema is an international form of expression by nature. So did you go to school for film? Or you went to school for political science? No, I went to school for political science. And, and then uh, it just became a... And, um, well, uh, I was about to write a dissertation about the political thought of D.W. Griffith, the director of The Birds of a Nation. And uh, I heard about D.W. Griffith, I heard about The Birds of a Nation and how controversial the film was and still is. So I look at the film and yes, indeed, it is a beautiful and controversial film, but I also realized that uh, the film has been saved thanks to the efforts of institutions such as the George Eastman Museum. So I got interested. So that, that's right, how I right. came from you know, political science yeah, yeah. to cinema. So it's always been an a academic pursuit and a preservation mission, not necessarily like, it's not like you started out as a filmmaker and you were shooting film and that kind of thing. It's you fell in love with the art form of film and that led you to kind of this the well, direction that you've gone? I'd say it was not even an academic pursuit because, as I said, I, I became a journalist and my interest in cinema was uh, not just academic. Uh, I thought that there is no reason why cinema should be considered a major art form alongside paintings, sculptures, architecture, music and the other performing arts. So I thought we should take cinema seriously and if we do we should care about the preservation of the art of cinema in the same way we care about the preservation of important paintings and sculptures. Well, you, you mentioned the resources that are at George Eastman Museum. What are some of the prominent collections that are here? Well, I, know there I, are came, many. I came to the George Eastman Museum because I was interested in the history of silent cinema. I was and I still am the organizer of a silent film festival. And the George Eastman Museum has one of the best collections of silent films worldwide. Uh, this is an ideal place where to study silent cinema. Uh, a lifetime will not be enough uh, to explore all the treasures of silent cinema contained in this institution. So that's fundamentally why I'm here. But that's not the end of the story. There are other great institutions with uh, wonderful collections of silent films. But in many ways, the George Eastman Museum represents an ideal synthesis between the quality of the collection, the expertise of the, of the staff, and uh, the uh, environment that makes research, study, and the experience of cinema such an exciting endeavor. Uh, in other words, uh, studying cinema here uh, is just an amazing experience. There's, there's definitely. I mean, you talk about the expertise of the staff, but also we, we can attest to the passion of the staff. And we've done, you know, we just did a, an interview just a short time ago with the people putting together the Nitrate Film Festival, and everybody we interact here. I mean, there is such a deep love of, of cinema and film throughout the entire institution that it's contagious. I mean, you can't help but get excited about it when you come in. Um, 
So we talked a little bit about kind of the, the uh, you talked about the museum as an international museum. There, you have collections from all over the world. There's like a, a very large Indian cinema collection that we just brought in. Could you talk a little bit about some of the collections that are, you have globally and kind of that a little bit more of the mission of the museum? Yes. Well, the the founding father of the moving image department at the George Eastman Museum, James Card, uh, was a great lover of cinema and a great lover of silent cinema. Uh, he began putting together an outstanding collection of international films uh, from the United States, from France, from Germany, the UK, and, and Italy. And thanks to his efforts, uh, we can now show and teach the history of silent cinema uh, in a way that has few parallels in the world. You must add to that the presence of a fantastic collection of cinematic equipment and technology, cameras, projectors, a wonderful library with over 40,000 books about photography and cinema, a huge collection of film stills, posters, scripts, lobby cards, memorabilia about the history of cinema. So you have everything in one place. Once you start uh, digging into the collection here, you realize that this is like uh, an endless uh, treasure trove. Yeah. And respected, you know, the globe over and even filmmakers like Martin Scorsese's personal collection is here. Um, it's a place that you know, uh, I think Michael Douglas visited recently. Like, it's a place that definitely gets uh, recognition from filmmakers everywhere. Well, and it has that respect because of what you were talking about, the the care that goes into the preservation and the, the whole bit. Yeah. Yes, well, we it, there is a, a term in museum language that's best practice. Uh, this is what we cultivate. Uh, it, is not, it, it is not enough to do things well. We want to do things in the best possible way. And uh, preserving film uh, requires a set of skills that is both technical and curatorial. Uh, it is not enough to know about the history of cinema. You have to know what are the uh, technological means necessary to make cinema uh, accessible and available in the form in which it was originally made. Then there is curatorship, and curatorship really is the art of understanding and explaining why cinema is important. Now, the thing is that cinema is at the same time an industry and an art form, and because it is an industry and a very thriving industry, uh, it has been hard in past decades to explain uh, why museums of cinema have to play a role uh, in the arts. Uh, but this is what our job is about. Uh, there is a term that is frequently used today, and that's uh, content. And that's a term I reject. Uh, we are not talking about content. We are not dealing with content. We are talking with a form of human exp expression as important as writing a novel or composing a score. Uh, cinema is no different from that. And this, is, this concept is at the core of our mission.
Yeah. And so you were involved in starting the Jeffrey Selznick School of Film Preservation, correct? And when did that begin? Yes. Uh, well, back in 1996, I met uh, Jeffrey Selznick, the son of film producer David O. Selznick, the producer of uh, Gone with the Wind and of Hitchcock's Spellbound. And uh, Jeffrey and I were discussing uh, potential projects, uh, restoring films, organizing a film festival. And at that time, I told Jeffrey, look, uh, I learn my skills uh, through everyday experience. At the time, there was no academic curriculum for film preservation. There was no place where young people could learn the arts and crafts of moving image preservation. There has to be a place, there has to be a school for this. And Jeffrey immediately embraced the concept. Now, the reason why this is called the Jeffrey Selznick School of Film Preservation uh, is that Jeffrey made it clear that he wanted to create a place where people could actually learn how to get things done, regardless of the reason why they wanted to do it. Did they want to learn about film preservation because they wanted to integrate this to their film studies curriculum? There's a school. But is there someone who's interested simply in learning how to preserve films? That Jeffrey Selznick School of Film Preservation is that place. So for this reason, uh, Jeffrey always wanted to make sure uh, that this program uh, was not perceived simply as an academic program. Uh, right now, in fact, our program is divided into two strands. Uh, there is an MA program in collaboration with the University of Rochester, two years, uh, during which students learn how to preserve films and then they write their dissertation and they may undertake an academic career but then there is also a one-year program that's specifically aimed at those who just want to know how film is restored and why cinema is important. Uh, this openness, this democratic approach uh, to film preservation uh, is uh, at the core of Jeffrey's vision. And, well, uh, I think that the 20 years of success of the Selznick School and the fact that we have over 200 graduates now working in film archives and museums all over the world is the best proof that Jeffrey uh, had the right idea at the right time. And I may add, he also came to the right place. Uh, because, as I said before, the Eastman Museum is the ideal environment uh, for uh, this kind of study and for this kind of endeavor. The students come here? Yes, the students come here and uh, we have you know, we had students coming from literally all over the world. Uh, now most major collecting institutions, archives and museums around the world uh, have Selznick graduates in their staff and sometimes in managerial or directorial positions. That's great. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's a fantastic testament to the, the concept and the idea and all the things that you were talking about and how important preservation has become. Um, how many students are in the program at any given time? Uh, we accept generally between 10 and 14 students per year. 
we do not want to have more students in any given year because we want to make sure that we can take a highly personalized approach to, to training. Uh, we don't want to deal with huge classes without much of a chance to have a direct dialogue with the students. In fact, we like to describe the Selznick School of Film Preservation as a living laboratory for film preservation. By the time a student leaves the Selznick School, she or he knows all the aspects of the art of preserving films and all the activities surrounding the act of preserving films, ranging from uh, cataloging to exhibition to project management and so forth. Excellent. Yeah, we, we actually went to the uh, visual studies workshop group um, for a home movie day. So I do believe that some of the students were there handling the film that um, people brought in from their Correct. Lives. Yes. Yeah. You see, uh, preserving f films is not much different from uh, learning how to play piano uh, or play music. Uh, you need to rehearse, to do the same thing over and over. Uh, this is not something that can be learned in, in 10 days. In fact, after all the years I spent in this profession, I'm still learning things uh, every, every, every day. It is through the daily practice that you really understand the specificity, the nature of the cinematic image. Uh, it is through the direct contact uh, with the work that the student understands what needs to be done in order to make, make it accessible for, for posterity. In short, uh, when the students come to the Selznick School on the first day, we tell them that we are going to let them experience the life of a film museum uh, in all its aspects. They see everything. They see all the exciting aspects of the job, but they also witness those components of the job that are, you know, are not particularly visible and are not particularly glamorous, but are nevertheless necessary to uh, a successful preservation plan. Yeah, they were able to tell me immediately I had brought um, 16 millimeter of my grandmother's wedding just by looking at it before even taking it out of the, the can, some of the faults that were yes. in it, which is, which is pretty great. Yes, see, well, the, so we, they knew bef before they put it in the projector, they knew that that could make it worse, you know, so yeah. that, that kind of care. You see, there is, there, is a, there is a term that is borrowed from the fine arts and that's called connoisseurship. Uh, when a student asks me how, how come I'm able to tell uh, when a film was made simply by looking at 10 or 15 seconds of it, uh, it's not because I have read books, it's only because I have seen many, many, many films and through the daily exposure uh, to films, good films, bad films, wonderful films, awful films, uh, we get the kind of knowledge that derives simply tactile from yes, almost yeah. uh, yes, uh, both like a visual and a, yeah. and, and a tactile experience of the of the object. So, so you've talked a lot about film preservation. It's obviously a lifelong pursuit for you. Um, what is it about cinema that you know? I want to dig in a little deeper on your personal views on it. Why? What is it about it, and why do you think it's so important that we preserve it? 
I could start by saying that uh, well, cinema is unique because it is at the same time a visual art, a narrative art, and a performing art. And here, what I mean by performance is not just the performance of the actors. Exhibiting a film is a form of performance. There is an auditorium, there is a screen, there is a projectionist who makes the cinematic event possible. And in the case of a silent film, there is a musician playing along the, the film. So uh, it is a performing art because each cinematic event is unique. Uh, we think that once you have seen a film, well, that's it. Well, that's not quite the case. Uh, watching a print of Casablanca in the George Eastman Museum Theater or in another theater is not the same thing because there, are not no, there is no such thing as two identical prints. Uh, incidentally, this also applies to the digital image uh, because two digital projectors will convey two different kinds of images. Uh, you can watch the same film and have a truly awful uh, image on screen or a really wonderful one. So it, in this sense, it is uh, a performing art. Uh, it is a visual art, and it is an art that has strong links with photography, of course, but also with other visual arts. It has strong links with, with theater, uh, with music, with literature. So in the sense, it is a true synthesis of so many arts, uh, architecture, uh, sculpture, and, and so forth. Plus, it is a relatively young art form, and as we all know, it is an art form that has not been taken very seriously until recent times. But this is what got me excited about film preservation in, in the first place. Uh, I was keen to explore an uncharted territory. Uh, I was keen to discover what needed to be done in order to promote the art of cinema. And, uh, well, overall, I felt that by uh, engaging with film preservation, uh, I was contributing in a modest way to a cultural endeavor, uh, which is again one of the missions of the George Eastman Museum. Yeah, it's, it's maintaining the history, you know, the history is sort of weaved into all those things we were talking about. You see the architecture, you see the, the whole gamut there. So not all films get preserved into film. Correct. Unfortunately not. <laughs> so what do you think, what determines whether a film is going to be preserved? What are the main factors? Money, um, the, the want for it to be there, a sort of a classic s stigma that a film has? Or There are many, many variables at stake. When we discuss preservation priorities at the museum, it goes without saying that this is, among other things, a financial issue. Uh, there is never enough money to preserve cinema and choices need to be made. Right. Uh, so I wish we had enough 
uh, money to preserve the entire collection. But we are not alone. Uh, we are in the same boat with uh, many other major institutions. Yeah, I meant in general too, yeah. not even just here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then you know, when it comes to determining preservation priorities, uh, we use a sort of a blend of different criteria. Uh, first, is the film in danger? Uh, is the film decomposing? Um, is the film about to disappear forever? Now, we have many, many films in this situation. Then we have to figure out which films are more rare or unique. And uh, given the choice between preserving a print that is not so rare and preserving a print that is rare or unique, we obviously go for, the, uh, for what is unique. We obviously take into account what the public, the audience, would like to see. And here we are uh, dealing with uh, specialized and non-specialized audiences. Uh, fortunately, there is now a more productive dialogue between museums, archives, and the academic community. Uh, we are always in touch with scholars, researchers, academics from the United States and all over the world. Uh, and we are asking each other what needs to be preserved first. But we also take into account what the audience would like to see. So if the audience is interested in a Lon Chaney film and if the Lon Chaney film needs to be preserved, well, we will certainly give priority uh, to that. There is, however, another component of film curatorship that is often overlooked, uh, and this is different from this is different from simply figuring out what is about to decompose or what the academia is interested in or what the audience is interested in. And this variable is called posterity. It is the future. To me, this is the most exciting part of my job. Uh, we need to be the messengers to the future. We need to imagine what audiences of the 22nd century will be interested in looking at. What will they think of the history of cinema? What will be their perception of what cinema has been in the 20th and 21st century. Uh, it may be that they will be interested in works that we do not currently perceive as important works. So the role of the curator is to imagine the future, to be a sort of antenna, to detect what is potentially an art form from the perspective of an audience we do not know yet. Now, this has happened already. If you think of the uh, films of a great pioneer filmmaker like Georges Méliès, the author of uh, A Trip to the Moon, made in 1902, when Méliès was making his films, no one was considering these films as artworks. Uh, this happened only uh, in the, 19, in the late 1920s. Uh, so now you see Melies films in art museums, uh, but uh, it took decades for this to happen. And the history of cinema is full of examples of this kind. 
Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, he was seen as a commercial filmmaker and now uh, his film Vertigo is at the top uh, of the list of the 100 best films ever made according to the British magazine Sight and Sound. So uh, this change in perception has already occurred, which is why what I find particularly exciting in our job is uh, the constant effort taken in looking at films, old and new, and thinking not only in what textbooks are saying, not only in what today's audience is telling us, uh, we also have to think about how a certain film will be perceived by an audience that's totally unknown to us. And that's for this reason that sometimes, whenever possible, I recommend the acquisition of new films that no one is really regarding as major artworks. Why? Because I think that there is something in this film. There is something that in a distant future may be perceived as a treasure. Now, is this an exact science? No, of course not. Are we going to make mistakes? Yes, absolutely. But that's the beauty of it. Uh, the uh, opportunity to put ourselves at risk in the name of culture, in the name of posterity, in the name of those who will be looking at what we have done, of the films we have made, uh, at the money we spent in order to protect films. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, I mean, it's, uh, in thinking about the interview with you today, I mean, it's one of the things that I was thinking about a lot is how important it is I'm going to try to frame this in the right way, but it's not just about um, it's the, the posterity uh, thing that you're talking about. It's also about showing people our vision of of the future, our vision of the past, our vision of ourselves right now in this moment in time. Like I think about, I love science fiction movies from like the 40s and 50s, but it's such a different version of science fiction than we have today. It's almost like how we imagined the future from that moment. And if we did those things today, they would be totally different. And it's just such an interesting and I think important thing that movies do different than almost any other art form is capture a moment in our, our almost our cultural psyche right this minute. So I think what you're talking about is really, really interesting in that you're trying to almost project forward, like what do people need to see in a way in the future? And I imagine that is is quite quite the challenge. Um, yes, uh, look, I, I would add that uh, the word curatorship has become fashionable. Right, uh, curated at, at the, content, you hear it all yeah, the time. At this, uh, at this time. And, you know, there's nothing you can do about fashion. They come and, and go and, well, uh, yes, I'm happy that people care about curatorship, but we should not forget that curatorship isn't easy. Uh, curatorship requires discipline, hard work, intellectual honesty, and most importantly, a great degree of unselfishness. By making choices on behalf of the future, uh, we are sending the message in, in a bottle, uh, but what counts is the message, not the messenger. In other words, uh, there is no glory to be achieved. 
in recommending that a certain film will be preserved. But there is uh, the satisfaction of knowing that thanks to our efforts, someone else uh, is going to be able to experience something that we have considered as beautiful. So film preservation in this sense is a form of a love letter that we uh, send to posterity uh, through the moving image. It's egoless. It should be. Right. It should be egoless. Mm -hmm. uh, I also like to compare uh, you know, curatorship and film preservation uh, to something that has nothing to do with cinema and may make you laugh, and that's uh, landscape architecture or landscape gardening, uh, which I consider another beautiful uh, form of art that I find very similar to film preservation in that the landscape architect has a vision of what nature may look like and organizes space, plants, trees, and bushes, and flowers without knowing exactly what the shape of the tree will be, how the landscape will look like, how the weather, the climate, and nature will mold and influence choices made by human beings. Our visual landscape is no different. No one is fully in control of it. Uh, we cannot single-handedly determine how the visual landscape of the 22nd century will look like. But we plant a seed because we think that a certain seed will produce a certain result that may be useful or interested uh, to our children and grandchildren. And then someone else will enjoy it. Uh, that's why I always recommend to remember this is not about us. Preserving cinema is not about who we are, uh, except in the sense that we are representatives of the present, we un have a certain understanding of the past, and we have certain hopes about the future. So I would like to tell the future how beautiful cinema is, or has been, but then I'm not making any assumption on how the audience of the future will appreciate the works we are preserving. In other words, we are not dictating why people should love the same films that I love. They may love cinema for completely different reasons that have nothing to do with mine, but at least there is a part of me there. Uh, there is a part of us there. Right. Yeah, and especially with motion picture, like Josh was saying, it's got a lot of information in it um, over time, too. So as opposed to a digital file, which may not last as long as something preserved on film, do you have any concerns for the future of where that's headed? People are aware of it, uh, but maybe not as many as they should. I have mentioned word history a number of times in this conversation, and I do think that uh, the, the difference between the photochemical image and the digital image is not just about technology. Uh, it's too easy uh, to uh, circumscribe the difference and to describe it in, in technological terms. Uh, I often claim that cinema is too important to be left in the hands of technocrats. Uh, the difference between the cinema and, and digital is fundamentally 
a cultural difference that has to do with two different perceptions of history, two different ways to uh, understand what time is, uh, two different notions of posterity. Now, there is nothing specialist about this. Uh, this is something that is reflected in everyday language. Uh, what is what is the long term in the digital world? Uh, the long term is 10 years, 20 years. Oh, if you save this file in a certain way, it will last 20 years. And from my perspective, I'd like to say, wow, big deal, 20 years. <laughs> right. uh, you know, right. I may be there to see what happened in 20 years. And I'm more interested in understanding what's going to happen in 500 years. So to me, the fact that if I do certain things, if I preserve film in a certain way, if I create a conservation center that will enable film uh, to uh, live in the best environmental conditions, I am told by the Image Permanence Institute that this film is very likely to be in perfect shape 500 years from now. And this resonates in a different way. It matters to me. Now, you may argue that you don't care, and you don't have to care about posterity. It is an opinion, and your opinion is as good as mine. Well, I happen to care uh, about posterity because I care about the future. I would like to, to help the future. Now, I also believe that each art form should be preserved, respected, and promoted in its own terms. There are wonderful works of art that are being produced by digital means. And I think that these works deserve the same kind of respect and commitment that we are now giving to a, a film that was made in the 1920s. Uh, but this also means that we should make sure that this respect to the form of expression applies to all the works made in different ways. So uh, there is nothing fetishistic or idealistic about the goal of letting an artwork live in its own terms and be seen in its own terms. Uh, this is not rocket science. It is very simple. In other arts, after all, uh, there is a difference between a fresco painting and uh, a watercolor. And no one is telling me, oh, but it's, it's content. You know, it is it is uh, a portrait. What's the difference? A portrait is a portrait. A face is a face, whether it's watercolor and a fresco. We wouldn't say that in the fine arts. Well, can we please apply the same principles uh, to the moving image? In other words, if we think that cinema is an art, are we ready to take the consequences of this and to apply the same intellectual integrity that we are applying for other art forms. Because if we don't, don't come to me and say that cinema is an art because we are not behaving as cinema is an, is an art. Uh, now, uh, that's also the reason why I am not interested in any comparison between the photochemical image and the digital image. Uh, 
to the same extent that I'm not interested in determining whether a watercolor is better than a fresco. They're not better or worse. They are different. If we have made a mistake, and perhaps the main mistake we have made before the, uh, the digital avalanche became this predominant form of expression that it is today, is the fact that we fell into the trap in even discussing what's better and what's worse. Do you remember all the years when we were told, oh, there is this electronic image, uh, it has so many pixels, it has so many lines, it almost looks as good as 16 millimeter, it almost looks as good as 35 millimeter. Uh, this, this quantitative comparison uh, that is actually you know, was and is driven by, by the market was detrimental to curatorship because it established a sort of hierarchy between what is better and what is worse. Now, even from a digital perspective, a digital artist should be offended by a comparison between the digital image and, and a film image because these are two different expressive tools. So we should not have indulged in this uh, kind of debate about what is better and what's, what's worse. Each form of expression has a place. Resources, possibilities, and limits. Plus, one day, digital will be over. It will be replaced by something else, which brings back the word history into, into the picture. Uh, what is interesting in today's visual arts is the fact that when the name digital is mentioned, uh, it is mentioned as if digital did not need history. Digital is timeless. Uh, once you know, there is a file, the file can, can be duplicated forever and it will always be the same. Uh, and there is this unconscious belief that digital will erase history. Uh, now, there is a great deg degree of hubris in this. No, it will not erase history, there will be something else some, at some point uh, that will make digital look obsolete uh, and that will make people say, oh, look at this, they were watching images on that box. How was it called? The iPhone. Oh, right. <laughs> wow. Well, how primitive that was. Right. You know, it's not like today. Now we have different tools. So. Uh, a little bit of humility right. uh, sure. wouldn't hurt. And, and the other arts didn't suffer from the comparison in the same way. Like It's not like when Photoshop came out, people said, throw away your watercolors and don't buy watercolors, or, we shouldn't, or they shouldn't exist in the way that it seems like it's happened with film in a way where it's almost like digital, we don't need film anymore. I mean, there just was a couple articles I read recently that were film should move on and just be replaced by digital because digital is so much better. And it's such an odd... To your point, it's such an odd comparison for me because it's, I haven't seen it happen in the other arts. Like, yeah, well, it, in fact, uh, I may argue that it did happen. Uh, the difference is the frequency of the event. For centuries, the dominant form of etching was the woodcut. It was invented 
at some point, uh, I don't remember in which century, but let's say somewhere around the 12th century. I don't know, I'm not an expert in the, in the field, but I know that, that woodcut was the dominant form of popular expression uh, for several centuries. And then woodcut became obsolete because there was a more sophisticated way of creating multiple images. So woodcut fell out of, of fashion. And there are other examples of this kind, but the difference is that change over time occurred uh, in the course of centuries. Now, the, the pace of change, as we all know, has accelerated to the point that what is uh, a novelty today will be obsolete in five years uh, from now. Plus, uh, uh, what makes our culture uh, so different is the fact compared to the culture of, let's say, a thousand years uh, ago, it is a culture that sees obsolescence as a necessity rather than a liability. Uh, machines are built in order to, to be obsolescent within a certain period of time, which is not what was being done a thousand years ago. Objects were built with the goal of making them as durable as, as possible. Uh, that's a reality we have, uh, we have to deal with, uh, and not, nobody can actually change this reality, but we can influence it. And the way to influence it is to show that the world where we live is not the only possible world. Uh, what we experience is not a necessity. It is an option. It is one of many possible options, and this option is, is the result of a collective choice. And choice can change. Uh, it is like in politics. When you are told that's the way things are, uh, my instinct says, says who? Right. Uh, it is only from, from the uh, perspective of someone who is you know, so passive in relation to reality that really thinks that, you know, as mom and dad told uh, you when you were a child, uh, it's because. Well, no. Uh, now, yes. in, in, in a small way, museums exist for this reason. They, they exist in order to tell a story and, and to show that this story was not necessary. There was nothing dogmatic about it. It could have been this, it could have been that, it became that. The history of color. Many color technologies were invented and Technicolor was predominant for some time and there are reasons for this, but things could have been uh, different. Being in a museum and being a museum of cinema in particular is a way of understanding that we do have a choice and we are the masters of our own destiny even in small big things such as looking at things creating images. Uh, even the very fact that we create images is something that should make us pause. In 1895, when the Lumiere brothers invented cinema, in a whole year, about 40 minutes worth of cinema was created. And guess what? Virtually all these 40 minutes are preserved. 
So virtually 100% of all the cinematic images made in 1895 are still with us. We are told, oh, but then things got bad and 90%, 80% of the cinematic heritage of the silent era was lost. Yep, that's a bad thing, but guess what? Do you know what is the percentage of moving images lost in 2015? It's 99.99% because so many images are, are being produced. Uh, and if you're told, well, because you know everybody can m- create an image with uh, with an iPhone or other devices, and my answer is, what's the difference? No, someone one day will say, in 2015, 99.99% of the moving images, crea- images created was lost. Are we preserving the best? Are we preserving what's necessary? We don't know, but again, That's why museums exist. Museums exist to make choices on behalf of the future. Again, uh, it is, and a choice, what is a choice? It is uh, picking among different possibilities, between different possibilities, showing that history could be this or could be that. And that's my interpretation of history. And you, the future, will decide if my interpretation was plausible or not right Right. well I mean I want to be mindful of your time and this has been a great it's been a great conversation and uh, we I think kind of what you just went through the importance of museums and what museums bring to us your work here at the George Eastman Museum is a great place to stop Um, we appreciate very much the work that you do and we appreciate very much your time today it's been a really great conversation thank you it's been a pleasure thank you so much great satisfaction to be able to speak to you through the medium of this wonderful invention. Like the show? Please subscribe on iTunes.